Welcome to episode 77 of the IIF's Finance Regulation and Technology podcast. I'm Lawrence White, consultant with the IIF on digital finance, with a particular focus on the Asia-Pacific region. And today I'm pleased to be interviewing Dr. Li Ming Zhu of the CSIRO's Data61 Lab and UNSW. Li Ming is the Research Director, Software and Computational Systems and Interim Director, Engineering and Design at Data61. CSIRO in Sydney. He's also a conjoint full professor at University of New South Wales. His research program has more than 300 people working in big data platforms, computational science, blockchain, regulation technology, privacy and cybersecurity. He has published more than 150 academic papers on software architecture, secure systems and data analytics infrastructure. He's also the chairperson of Standards Australia's Blockchain and Distributed Ledger Committee. A warm welcome, Liming. Can I start by asking, what is Data61 and what is its mission? All right, thanks for having me, Lawrence. It's my pleasure to be on the podcast. Um, so Data61 is the digital and data research arm of CSRO, Australia's National Science Agency. Um, in case you wonder why 61, uh, 61 is Australia's country code. When you are calling, so there's a code name to say Data61 comes from Australia. So we have about 1,000 people, including 500 staff, another 500 PhD students and affiliates spreading across a dozen cities and labs in Australia. As Australian Science Agency, our mission is to solve Australia's greatest challenge using digital science and technologies. We are also a trusted advisor to government and Australian industry. And so what is Data61's role in the Consumer Data Right Project? And perhaps you can give a broad description of what the CDR project is and what are its objectives? Right. So consumer data rights has always been sort of linked to open banking, but actually was conceived with a much broader scope and ambition. Consumer here means both individual consumers and business consumers in Australia. And these consumers have their data, such as uh, banking transactions, energy usage, telecommunication plans, and etc., being held by big businesses that are providing these services but these data are not easily accessible by others. So the CDR, Consumer Data Rights, is really a new regulatory regime in Australia that enables consumer greater access and control over their data, allow them to be securely shared with accredited third parties. Uh, some obvious benefits you can imagine would be to improve consumers' ability to compare and switch products, encourage competition between service providers, leading to a more innovative products and services. So Data61's role is the data standard setter of the consumer data rights. And the consumer data rights is, is a regulatory regime. There's a lot of regulators in it. Data61 currently is the interim host of the data standard setting body, covering data and API standards, security profiles, standards around consumer experiences and consent management. As this whole CDR thing is quite new, especially beyond the banking sector, we are basically being given the task of designing how this whole thing should work in terms of standard setting and getting it operationalized. Sounds like a very big and important project. So um, there are multiple sectors in the scope of the CDR, as I understand it. Banking went live, uh, I think, on the 1st of July this year, and I understand it was a soft launch. What does that mean? And um, what is the anecdotal or statistical evidence of the take-up so far of open banking? Right. Uh, the soft launch is just means we have a quite a limited announcement and public uh, awareness campaign as we really want to test this out in a live setting 
before we widely encourage everybody, as you mentioned, the four major banks in Australia have launched it, and individual consumers can request their bank to share their data for deposits, transaction accounts, credit cards, debit cards. And 1st of November, I think the consumers will be starting to be able to share their data related to home loans and personal loans, among other things. So the timing of the energy and telecoms phase-ins, can you, um, can you talk about that at all and, and perhaps other industry sectors? Uh, what is the process for determining uh, which other sectors will come in scope? So work in the energy sector, especially around the retail electricity market, has already commenced, um, but the clear timeframes have not been announced. Uh, in the original announcement, uh, when NCDR was introduced, uh, telecommunication was also named as a potential designated sector, but there's no timeline for that as well. The energy uh, is progressing very well. It's a very complex market, but it interestingly have a very different data sharing architecture involving potential gateways in the middle rather than peer-to-peer sharing like in the open banking scenario. And what is the role of other agencies in the project, such as the uh, Australian Competition and Consumer Commission or ACCC? the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner, or OAIC, and the Australian Treasury, among others. Right. So as a regulatory regime, there are regulators involved in it. So ACCC is Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. It sets the regulatory rules of data sharing and also uh, doing the compliance part of these rules. OAIC, as you mentioned, is Australian's Information Commissioner and handles privacy safeguards and the respective complaints. The treasurer is actually responsible for designating sectors and the respective data, and is also responsible minister for the consumer data rights regime. When the treasury wants to designate a new one, definitely it needs to go through a process. The process is very wide range consultation, making sure that certain factors are met, such as interest of the consumers, efficiency of the relevant markets, privacy, confidential concerns, and promoting competition and the data-driven innovation. Thanks very much. So I'll ask you some questions on the substance of the standard setting in the banking sector and also then a bit about the standard setting process. And then we'll talk a little bit about your broader work program, which is also very interesting from a digital finance perspective. So just focusing on some of the substantive issues around your standard setting for the banking sector specifically, what have been the main technical challenges or issues that have led to the most discussion or debate? And where did the data standards body land on those issues? Right. I would say uh, there are a lot of debates. Uh, These are not issues because consumer data rights, even in the open banking uh, space that a number of international cases have happened before and still ongoing, is still quite new in Australia. As I described earlier, ACCC is the Australian consumer regulator. It's not the typical financial regulators involved in all the standard setting across multiple sectors. So a lot of the time, is the debate is around the rules setting done by ACCC and the standard setting and the interaction between the two. It's not a one-way thing because some of the standard setting considerations will also influence the rules as well. But uh, Australian's uh, CDR regime is under a very short time frame to get it launched because the benefits to the economy is enormous. So a lot of the uh, debate is around uh, how do we set standards uh, without fully uh, clarify the rules and how the rules uh, will change over time to reflect some of the new learnings. But specific issues have come up with includes obviously 
availability of data and cybersecurity. There is also discussion around how consumers can directly access their own CDR data. Because the original intention of the regulation was to have accredited data receivers to receive data from data holders. But sometimes consumers also want to have their own data and in what way we should be providing that data. Another interesting technical issue has been the intermediaries. Because initially the thinking was that accredited data receivers will be both collecting data and using data. And there is a lot of rules around how this can be done. But there might be a new role for intermediaries who only facilitate collecting data without actually using the data. And they will be passing on this data to the accredited data receivers. So whether there will be new standards or new rules around the intermediaries, that's another discussion and also changes some of the data architecture of the consumer data rights regime. The last thing I think has been extremely interesting in the standard setting is we're setting standards around the consent and consent management. It's not easy to do because consent of a consumer, whether it's a business consumer or especially individual consumer, they really need to understand the consent, what they are consenting to. We certainly do not want to have hundreds of pages of terms and conditions for consumers to read. Now, how to strike the right balance between understandability and the legal compliance in terms of consent in the standard setting has been fascinating. Thanks very much. Switching focus to, I guess, the benefits for fintechs, um, particularly internationally or, or financial institutions. How can international fintechs or FIs use the CDR mechanisms to gain access to Australian banking data? Or firstly, I should say, can they? And if so, how can they? Is there an innovation hub or window they can apply through? Or what is the process for people who are not that familiar with this market? Uh, the answer is yes, they can if they go through the accreditation processes. The accreditation rules and processes is publicly available online. And the regulation says, by default, one must not disclose CDR data to an entity located overseas unless one of the four exceptions applies. And those exceptions include you know, just getting properly accredited through the, the normal process. And this is through the ACCC or some other body? Uh, yes, this is through the ACCC at the moment. And has future interoperability with other international open banking schemes such as the UK's or Singapore's, PSD2, etc., been built into the standards issued so far? And is Data61 or the standards body connected with international data standardization efforts in this space of open banking? So first, um, when we started the standard setting, obviously we have been having a very active and constant dialogue with UK's open banking implementation entity. We have learned a lot from the UK experience, which started before, obviously, Australia's open banking effort in the context of CDR. We are also referencing a lot of international standards. For example, the strategic intent is to adopt the financial grade API 2, the FAPI 2. And not only in banking sector, we are in active conversation with UK's National Regulatory Authority for Gas and Electricity Market, who are also moving towards a similar data sharing arrangement. And we have been having constant discussion through consultation with OpenID Foundation. There's a lot of reference in the OpenID Foundation. But I have to say, sometimes we do have to make a conscious decision to deviate from a particular international standard. Like in the OpenID case, late last year, uh, we officially responded to OpenID in terms of some of the minor deviation we are making from them and why we are making those decisions. 
Uh, so the principle is we reference many normative or informative standards around the world. The intent is to use those in the public domain. Great. That's really helpful. And I will touch on our work at the IF with the Open ID Foundation a bit later. What are some of the issues around providing digital ID in the open banking space and how are you tackling them? So one is, as I mentioned earlier, things like open ID, when uh, we make a deviation from, uh, obviously, that's, that's, that's a technical challenge for the implementation side uh, that you have to have this minor deviation. But the reason of doing that is consumer data rights in Australia is legislative regime that we need to be compliant with and we cannot change the law. Sometimes we have to make a minor deviation because of that. There's also consideration to reduce the cybersecurity risk further, and there's also implementation concerns, uh, the implementation cost side, so making some of this deviation. But on the other hand, uh, we're pretty much relying on the identity access and the management system of the uh, financial institutions, such as banks, to handle most of that. Just making sure the interoperability complies with international standards. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, so, in some ways, it may resemble a little bit the bank ID system in the Nordic countries, which is a, a federated ID model. Um, so, what are the open work items on the DSB's work program specifically around open banking, or have you closed the book on that standard setting at the moment? No, I think standards is definitely an evolving piece of technical work. Uh, we use GitHub to manage a lot of the standard setting and issue resolution. It's a very open process. Any comments, feedback is largely lodged through the GitHub open process. Obviously, you can make a confidential submission due to certain sensitivities, but we try to make the process as open as possible. Because of this feedback, every uh, month or two, we release uh, updates on the standards, obviously considering uh, backwards compatibility to improve the standards further. Even for the banking space, there is quite a number of different products and data sets. So the scope of the standards might still be expanding in terms of new data sets being included. In addition to some minor improvements and introducing no new data sets, a strong focus has been data quality and enhanced error handling. So we're holding a lot of national workshops around data quality and enhanced error. Thank you. Now, you touched on the fact that you prefer open standards, I guess, um, or open source. Can you just talk about the influence of open source principles, perhaps, on the work, and also touch on the composition of the advisory committee that feeds into the data standards body? Right. So first, open source, you know, the reason we have chosen GitHub, um, which is, have been widely used to manage uh, open source projects, is we do aspire to the open standards uh, principles and making a lot of the standard setting process and the resolution of issues uh, very open. But uh, essentially, the function of the data standards setting body is simply to assist the role of the data standards chair. So that's this chair currently uh, held by Andrew Stevens in Australia, uh, who has authority to make, vary, or revoke the CDR data standards. The chair also has the authority to establish committees, advisory panels, and consultative groups. So far, the chair has chosen to establish two advisory committees. So those are advisory committees. One is for banking sector. The other is for energy sector. Both committees focus comprised of a mixture of data holders, accredited data receivers, consumer advocates, 
and the government observers. The membership of those committees are actually quite been leaning more towards the data receiver side, fintechs, and smaller ecosystem, because really that's what the CDR is aimed at supporting, rather than having too many representatives from the big banks on the committee. Now, looking forward, the government has commissioned Scott Farrell of Kingwood Malsons, who authored the first report on CDR, which led to the legislation. So they've commissioned him to review certain issues around the CDR. Can you just briefly touch on what are the terms of reference of the review? What's the purpose of the review? Right. Uh, so the terms of reference is publicly available on the Treasury's website. If you search like future directions, consumer data rights, uh, terms of reference, it'll lead you to it. It's a quite long um, terms of reference, I won't go into the details, but the primary goal is to review and make recommendations around possibility of expanding the functionality of the consumer data rights, ensure that consumer data rights promotes innovation. So there's a lot of productivity concerns. Because consumer data rights covers multiple sectors, obviously the interesting thing is cross-sector data flow rather than limited to single sector. And I've heard that the um, possibility of moving from a read-only um, regime to a read-write regime is part of the uh, terms of reference. Is that the way you see it? Yes, it's definitely part of the review uh, to look at the write part of the CDR and open banking. We, we are moving uh, towards those directions. And as I understand it, that would allow fintechs and others such as big techs possibly to initiate payments using money held in bank deposits. The policy objective of CDR is really to uh, promote innovation. We want to see new, innovative uh, business models, products and services to be available. Okay, so let's uh, switch lenses, as we say, to other Data61 research projects. You've got so many things on the go, and I, I really struggle to kind of choose among them. Got a few minutes there, so if you can perhaps touch on some of the, the new projects or the current research projects either at Data61 or, for that matter, at UNSW that you think might be interesting to uh, international finance? Uh, right. So I'm probably briefly, um, conscious of time, touching on four broader directions we are taking. Uh, one is around uh, cybersecurity and privacy. So we have a number of projects, including with some of the major banks on identity access management, privacy information. But that's probably not surprising. Uh, it's a very interesting space uh, as we have things like open banking and CDR available. But we are also working on post-quantum cybersecurity. So Australian recently, through CSRO, the National Science Agency, launched the uh, quantum roadmap. There's a lot of discussion around quantum security related to finance industry. From one side, it's how to make your cybersecurity posture quantum resistant if there is a quantum computer coming in in the coming decade, it takes time to roll out quantum-resistant cybersecurity means. On the other hand, if there is a such quantum computer available, uh, what would be the financial applications, some of the machine learning and other things that uh, we can speed up through the use of quantum computing. So that's, that's around cybersecurity and quantum. Another line of research is really on new technologies dealing with uh, sensitive data flow across organizations and the borders. We know data is valuable and people are increasingly being more conscious around privacy and the responsibility of using this data in terms of responsible technology, responsible AI. So how do we protect that by promoting data flows across organizations or even cross borders? There was a lot of new research around data use without sharing, without copy sharing a data with someone, federated data analytics and machine learning. And the model of 
the new paradigm of moving the model to the data rather than the other way around and around AI and uh, machine learning security. So can you just unpack slightly that last um, idea you, you mentioned about moving the model to the data, not data to model? Just explain for, for the layman um, or, um, or for me, uh, what do you mean by that? Right. So this is actually quite widely used already. Imagine you have your iPhone, your mobile device, you have a lot of valuable data on your phone. A lot of learning or prediction on what you're going to type next time, obviously, it's not about sending the data back to the cloud and doing some analysis and prediction. You can build a local model, whether this local model is on your device or in your single organization. This model can be shared uh, and then further instructions or maybe other people's model will be sent to your data to improve your training. So the data has never left your organization or your device, but um, insights has been drawn from it. So that's what we mean by moving some generic model to your data to get refined further for data analysis. Got it. I also spotted that you chair the Australian Standards Committee on Blockchain Standards, uh, mirroring into ISO TC307. And I also understand that there's work going on on a possible digital finance collaborative research centre, which is blockchain focused. Could you please um, tell us a little bit about those uh, initiatives? Actually, the international standards around blockchain uh, was initially proposed by Australia and, and then obviously uh, agreed and approved by the uh, ISO. And we are right in the middle of standardizing and Australian leads in a number of things in this space. So Australia does have a strong interest in blockchain technologies and the standardization around it. Um, one strong use case is around the digital finance. So at the moment, we have joined a bid to set up a 10-year cooperative research center around the digital finance. We call it CRC, Cooperative Research Center. It's a bit into government uh, at the moment, so we don't know the result yet. So the goal of that, obviously, digital finance refers to the digitalization of assets, presentation of those assets as tokens, and how to do exchange. There's a number of research programs within looking at the infrastructure, the exchange. I think it's a fascinating space because many of the barriers of moving use towards this direction of using blockchain technologies for digital finance is really the regulation and law side. And this particular uh, uh, bit, we have involved the best talent around the country in law, digital law, uh, regulation technologies to use a multidisciplinary approach to solve this problem. And it's a, it's a long-term investment, a 10-year research center, probably even longer. So we, we are optimistic more innovation will happen. Thanks. And um, I understand that Australia recently launched a national blockchain roadmap and has recently formed two working groups. Could you briefly tell me a little bit about them and their possible relevance to finance? Right. So Australia's national blockchain roadmap, led by our Department of uh, Industry, was launched late last year. So the roadmap itself was launched a while ago. But after the roadmap launch, we got a lot of industry interest, uh, a, a lot of uh, excitement in it. And we want to focus because blockchain have numerous use cases, uh, we can imagine. Recently, we just uh, set up two uh, working groups, one of them on supply chain, actually led by the one experts in this space, and another on credentialing. So supply chain, you can imagine, it's not necessarily just the physical supply chain, it can be information supply chain. And a lot of the supply chain have strong interaction with uh, trade finance. And, and uh, you may, you know, your audience will know there's a lot of trade finance blockchain consulting around the world. So we're definitely looking into 
finance elements of the supply chain a lot through the blockchain technology working group. And the other one, credentialing, although probably with a lot of interest in micro-credentialing and credentialing in the education space, but its application to finance industry is also there. Well, look, uh, thanks so much, Liming. That's been a fascinating discussion uh, and insight into what's obviously a very busy and productive research and standardisation effort. We could obviously talk all day about um, any one of those topics. For our part, as I mentioned earlier at the IF and with many of our members, we're working hard on the Open Digital Trust Initiative jointly with the OpenID Foundation. We're aiming for recommendations and protocols that will make for an interoperable and open source marketplace with the objectives of introducing foundational trust into the global digital economy. We interviewed some of the leaders of that effort in our FRT podcast number 73. Looking ahead, we have some great podcasts coming up in the FRT podcast series. We're going to explore the connectivity between some of the new payment initiatives around the world, picking up on some great illustrations given in our recent webinars by Terry Angelos of Visa and Jesse McWhorters of MasterCard. Kitty Parry, founder and CEO of DeepView, will be joining us to discuss data ethics and the role of artificial intelligence in society today. We'll discuss the results from the IAF survey on machine learning model governance, which 66 banks and insurers have participated in. We'll, lastly, we'll discuss portability between clouds with Google Cloud, looking at their Google Anthos initiative and picking up on the increased criticality of cloud that Ulku Roa spoke about recently on FRT episode 75. Well, that's all from me, Lawrence White, and thanks uh, very much again to our distinguished guest, Dr. Li Ming Zhu. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. You can download the FRT podcast from Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever else you download your podcasts. 